Where are you cowboys and cowgirls at? Hey everybody, this is Dan Hillenbrand and welcome to Modern Cowboy, the podcast for the cowboy lifestyles and businesses around the world. I'm glad you're here, so sit back in your saddle and prepare to be inspired, motivated, educated, and entertained as I interview a new guest each week that embodies the modern cowboy. Hello and uh, welcome to the Modern Cowboy Podcast today. Um, I've got a great guest on that I'm really looking forward to talking to. Uh, first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, uh, making the show possible today. It's uh, FSR Cattle Company. FSR Cattle Company, they're the premier producer of team roping and steer wrestling cattle out of Weatherford, Texas. So whether you need a couple truckloads for big, big event or if you head to practice around your place, check out FSR Cattle Company at www.fsrcattlecompany.com or also on Instagram and Facebook. And also, they now offer a rope horse program as well. Um, definitely check that out if you're in the market for a uh, new rope horse. So, FSR Cattle Company, uh, Weatherford, Texas, all your team roping and performance cattle needs, and also team roping horses. So, um, again, I, I, I want to just thank everybody that's been you know, listening to the podcast and, and downloading it all over the world. Uh, really, really appreciate your support and, um, and just thankful that, uh, that we're doing something that uh, people are enjoying and, and finding value in. So thanks again for, uh, to everyone for uh, supporting, the, supporting the show. So today on the podcast, I have Josh Lawrence, you know, and, and everybody in life, you know, has challenges and things we have to overcome. And I think Josh has got a uh, compelling and very inspiring story about his journey. And uh, we're going to let Josh tell us about that uh, today on the uh, podcast. So Josh, hey, welcome to uh, Modern Cowboy Podcast. Daniel, how you doing, brother? I'm glad to be on it. Doing good, man. Good. How about yourself? Man, I'm, I'm doing all right. It's a good day for trucking. It's clean and clear out here in Phoenix. I'm uh, sitting actually in our mechanic shop here uh, doing this interview with you. I, I, I went to the head mechanic earlier and said, hey, man, I got, I got an interview with a good old radio show I listen to, and I'm going to have to borrow your office for a while. So he was uh, very generous enough to let me do so. Very cool. Very cool. So um, now you're, you're cowboy and team roper and uh, family man and trucker. Um, you just let's you know give the listeners a, a background on you and in uh, you know what what things have transpired in your life and led you to be at the the point you you're at in your life right now well i mean for starters i wouldn't exactly uh give myself a good grace and call me a team roper i think that that's for the more established folk but i i it is something that i that I, I love and enjoy it. it. It is a sport that I think, uh, you know, anytime you're on a horse and any activity like that definitely, uh, definitely takes your mind off the things you got going on, man. But basically it, to, to kind of, to kind of start from the beginning, my story starts in uh, Northern California. I was born to, uh, uh, two people up in uh, Napa Valley. Uh, a lot of people are probably familiar, familiar with Napa Valley. It's the land of uh, good wine and, uh, uh, hills that are currently on fire. So it's, uh, definitely a, a, a deal nowadays but uh anyways yeah I was born to uh my mom and my dad uh, uh Terry and Tony and uh for the first eight years of my life everything was really good you know my dad had a great job my mom was hard into the horses uh we lived on uh uh B I believe it's called Diamond Bar B Ranch out in Calistoga California it was a real good place to grow up on I was always around the horses I was around uh you know pretty much just the basics of, of horsemanship as far as you know learning how to take care of them understanding how they think how they get along you know how they how they act and herd stuff like that and then uh kind of shortly into all that I would say probably my second or third grade my uh parents ended up getting a divorce and that's kind of where things started taking turns because I'd always knew that my mom had a real bad drug history I always knew that my dad was a really bad alcoholic. That was apparent for the fact that he'd show up from work and be passed out drunk by 3.30 p.m. You know, so it's pretty obvious, I think, at that point that somebody's an alcoholic, right? Mm. Uh, well, anyways, my mom, when uh, they got divorced, she kind of went through this downhill spiral where started getting involved with a lot of men that were beating her, started getting involved with a lot of men that were 
you know, just real, real bad people that were involved in this drug scene in the North Bay area of California, which is already not a friendly place, let alone if you're into the drug scene. So while my parents were getting a divorce, it was real hostile. You know, my, I was at home, I'd be with my mom and I'd be sitting there watching some guy beat on her, you know, and at eight years old, when you see these things go on, you're kind of like, do I ignore this or, or, or do I face this at value? Cause your natural instinct is you want to defend your mom. But you know, when you're eight years old and you're three feet tall, you see a man that's six foot five and he looks like a giant, you know what I'm saying? So kind of, kind of puts, put some rough things into that. Well, shortly after my parents got a divorce, well, it wasn't even actually before my parents got a divorce. It was, it was way before my parents got a divorce. My uh, dad had started a, a, a relationship with a woman who, um, you know, he perceived to be a better person. And, and I think at this point in time, I, I think his intentions were, were fair and right. And uh, what had happened was that she, she had a lot of mental health issues that created her to not exactly be a friendly, clear thinking person. Uh, she was very irrational at times with things. I mean, it was, it was things that would make no sense. Like if you didn't eat this bowl of chili that I made you, you were getting locked in your closet for days at a time kind of stuff. If you didn't, uh, you know, brush your teeth for two minutes straight, uh, you were getting whipped with a toothbrush. You know, it was, it was things like this that made no sense. And, and so like, I kind of started to recognize that being with my dad, cause he would let these things happen wasn't exactly the best place for me to be. So I went and moved in with my mom who was living in a fifth wheel trailer in uh, a town called Clear Lake, which has an infamous reputation of being a drug city and, and a drug city in the worst way. Um, people, you know, who pretty much run around the whole town cooked off on meth and heroin all day. So she got involved pretty, pretty soon with that scene. And then, um, like I said, she ended up getting involved with a guy who was probably I don't know, nine, nine, nine and a half. By the time this was going on, my parents were still, this, this divorce took pretty much five years because there's so much involved into all of it. Uh, I would say probably about nine, nine and a half. My mom got with an individual who his name was Doug. And this guy was extremely violent. And I'm talking about violence in the worst ways that you could possibly think about on humanity. I mean, I watched him dang near kill a guy in front of me multiple times. You know, it's just throwing my mom through a table beating my mom in the head with a baseball bat, uh, you know, hitting me with, with a chain, all these kind of things that went down that really just like were the most horrifying thing. And then I, and, and then some other stuff that he had done to me and to my cousin, which I don't think we need to go into specifics on that, but it's not, it's not really a good thing. Uh, you know, any, I, I think any kind of abuse on a child is bad, but I think once it gets into that, uh, parameter, it gets even worse, especially, uh, trauma wise. But, um, anyways, I, I was probably like nine and a half and, I'm sitting on the couch one day at my mom's house and I, and I was hardcore into wrestling. I used to watch wrestling all the time as a kid. I'm a man enough to admit it. I used to love that stuff. It got my head out of the zone. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sitting there one day and uh, he's beating on my mom. And, and this guy that I knew is Chris, I think, I, I think that's what his name was. He comes in and he shoots this man in the chest, literally two feet from me, shoots this guy. Oh. And so I'm nine and a half years old and I just hear a gun blast go off. And, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, Dan, like I didn't even know what a gun blast was. So I kind of was like, wow, really loud noise guy standing there bloody. Why is Doug on the ground, uh, you know, doing like the Caesar dance. Yeah. So my mom comes and grabs me and runs me out of the house. I uh, calls my dad says, Hey, you need to come and get him now. It's a big emergency here. Well, my dad says, Oh, I'm not coming to get him. Every time he's here, he acts bad all this. And my mom's like, look, this guy just got shot here right in front of him. Your kid's got blood all over him. The, the sheriffs are coming. It's, it's, it's a horrible scene. So he didn't come and pick me up. Uh, he made me stay there. So when the cops came, they, they like did their whole investigation, talked to me, talked to my mom, talked to everybody. My mom and I ended up leaving, going to another trader with another guy. And uh, this Doug guy, I don't know. I know that he ended up surviving because I seen him three years later, but we'll get to that. But my mom ended up getting a relationship with a guy named John who fundamentally – I think the dude had really good intentions because he treated me more as a son than at this time my own father did. And uh, he was hardcore into drugs, but it was weird. He was like one of those drug addicts who he didn't believe in hurting people. Uh, he only hurt drug addicts because he thought of them as a scum of the earth, you know, and a lot of people can relate to that. Um, so, you know, whatever. I mean, criminal to criminal, I guess that's the way that they do it. So in essence, I was with them till about 13 years old, right? And, um, I don't know, it, it was, it was going fairly decent. They had their, their, their little things going on. And then, um, I ended up getting in trouble in high school on and off. I was getting in a lot of trouble and it was pretty much because 
I didn't really have a whole lot of respect for authority. And I didn't have a whole lot of respect for myself because I grew up in this chaotic environment where it was appropriate to backtalk people. It was appropriate to use foul language towards, you know, law enforcement and school officials because I seen them as a direct threat to my sovereignty of life. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids that grow up in a, in, a, in a hostile environment, that's the kind of mentality that they get, that they're so used to chaos and violence that that becomes so integrated into their life that when they don't have chaos, they don't function. And, that, and that's a sick, sad thing to, to have. So I'm about 13 years old and I've got my buddy and a lot of people who know me know that I've been playing drums now. I'm 27 years old. I've been playing drums for 20 years. Uh, so at this point in time, I was about eight years in playing drums. I had a band, you know, we were some little metalhead kids playing, uh, you know, uh, metal music on the weekdays, country music on the weekends. It was the most awesomest thing in the world. I, I, I love it. Music is my passion. Well, moral of the story, my buddy and I are sitting there and for some reason, John snapped, hit my buddy in the side of the head with a shovel. And this kid is 14 years old. Dang near kills this kid. I still to this day don't even know what happened. I took off running, called 911. The cops show up. They raid the house, find out that he's high on speed. They almost have to shoot this guy and kill this guy. Turns into this whole thing to where now the cops are investigating whether or not I'm involved in this. All kinds of stuff's going on. So I'm like 13. So I end up going to juvenile hall. Uh, they end up arresting me and, and taking me to juvenile hall at 13 years old. And I end up going uh, through this program that was supposed to, uh, it was supposed to put me into a foster care system that was going to be productive and, and get me the help that I needed. Well, my mom ended up, uh, my mom ended up standing uh, up for that and said, hey, you know, I can't let him do that. He's going to be fine, all this. So I ended up getting released from juvenile hall after like 90 days out of this whole incident. When I got out, went back to my mom's house. I think it was there for maybe, I would say probably 30 minutes. This John guy snapped and is like, you're, you're just calling me all these names. I'm a snitch. I'm a cop caller. You know, you sided with the police over your own family, all this. And I'm like, man, you know, I got to go. So I ended up sleeping in a forest that was behind their place. And, and, and I was, I don't know, 13, 13 and a half at this time. And I had a... Uh, a rubber shower curtain that I used to use as a blanket. Anyways, uh, to go on further from that, I, I had a, a friend of mine, whose name is Bo and his mom knew about my situation and his mom knew that like, Hey, something with this kid isn't right. So he brought me over to his house one night and she was like, well, where do you live? I said, well, I, I think I told her some made up address and, and I live over here, all this. And she's like, well, you're awfully dirty for being living somewhere. You're wearing clothes that got holes in them, all this. Like, tell me for real where you live. And I told her, I said, well, I live in the forest behind the house and in the, in the orange robes. And, uh, I'm using a shower curtain as, a um, as a blanket and I'm stealing clothes from the thrift store and I'm still trying to go to school at the same time, but it's kind of hard because I ain't got nothing. And what sucks about the community I came from that homeless children was, was so high in that community that it, as long as the kid was going to school and taking a shower at school, they didn't really care where you were at night, you know? So, uh, this woman, uh, who, later comes to be the woman that I refer to as my mother. Her name's Troy. She uh, basically was like, Hey, I, I don't care your lifestyle at all. Like I'm not going to let a baby be out on the street. So she brought me into her house at like I don't know, 13 and a half, almost 14 brought me in. All this took about six months to transpire. Cause I kept lying to her about where I was living. Cause I was embarrassed. And I kept, you know, trying to avoid her at all costs because I'd be walking down the road, come back from school. She'd pull up in her Jeep and be like, so where are you going? And I'd be like, well, I'm going home. She's like, where's your house? And I'd be like, Oh, I live over here in that really nice house down here. And she's like, cool. I want to meet your parents. And I would like take off running. So she tried her hardest for a while to get me in until finally I was like, I have to do this. So I ended up moving in with her and she pretty much gave me a better stable environment, obviously, and, you know, fed me and clothed me, took me out, bought me clothes. And the craziest thing about all this was she calls my real dad one day and uh, goes, Hey, uh, I took your son in. And he's like, okay. And she's like, yeah, I'm just interested in why he's running the street. And he's like, well, he's a horrible kid. He gets bad grades in school. He talks back and she's like, well, you know, from the story that I hear, you know, you, you and your wife are beating on him and letting these horrible things go on and you're not addressing them. So my dad is a, uh, my real father is an interesting character. He will try to deny a lot of these things and push blame towards me as being the reason that they happen. I mean, he's straight told my in-law families before that the reason why I was beaten as a child is because I got bad grades. And to put those things together in the same sentence is insane because he, I, I, me as a father, I understand. I got three kids myself. I understand spanking your son when they talk out of line, but beating your kids with chains and ropes, tying them up outside, refusing to let them in when it's, you know, 10 degrees outside and it's snowing out 
uh, you know, I would have to, when I was living with my dad, I would have to go and find places to stay because his wife wouldn't let me stay there when he was at work. It, it's the most craziest story that would take years and years to be able to like put together on paper and, and <laughs> actually make sense of it. But anyways, so she, Troy and Troy's an amazing woman. Let me tell you something about my mama. She is one of those who is like, if she doesn't agree with your opinion, she will flat tell you while you're wrong. And, and, and my dad, I've never seen my dad so afraid of a woman in my entire life because he showed up, I don't know, about a year of living, living there. He shows up and goes, yo, I want to talk to her. I, I need to make sure that my son's in good hands. And, and this was like a year later, right? So I'm like, make sure my son's in good hands, bro. Like I've been here already for a year. Like, what are you talking about? And, uh, she, she goes, she comes up to me and she goes, Hey son, do me a favor. She refers to me as son right in front of him. And that you can see in his face that that, that hurt him. And she goes, I think you and Bo and Hannah, who is my uh, younger sister, uh, need to go and take a walk. And I said, all right, uh, we'll go and take a walk. Needless to say, by the time I got back, he was gone. And she had a check for $300 because he paid her off $300 to keep me. And, you know, that was pretty much the last of that uh, when it went to my, uh, uh, my real father and, and the woman I consider my mom. Now, you know, that's the deal they worked out. I guess it was only worth $300 to my dad. So he sold me off to her, which was one of the best things that's ever happened to me well mm -hmm. a lot of people who can relate uh to me here and and a lot of people that are going to hear this next portion are going to understand where i'm coming from being in any kind of foster care environment it takes a toll emotionally and the reason why is is because troy is the most amazing upfront person that i have in my life and i love that woman with all my heart but being in someone else's house not knowing if you're a burden or not and, and wondering every single night if this person is only doing it because they mentally have to or because they want to, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Uh, and, and it literally, I, I cannot explain to you the emotional drain that it takes on you. And, and I dealt with that. I, I still deal with that today. And, and how the, the, basically the way that I dealt with it then was I had met a girl, and this is about four years further. I met a girl. I'm about 17 years old now. And she tells me, she goes, well, I got a house out in Arizona and my uh, family out there, you know, will let us move there. So I said, okay, you know, I talked about it and she's like, yeah, they got a really nice house out in Maricopa and everything's going good. So I said, you know what? I got to get out of Clear Lake. I'm never going to be nothing if I stay here. I went to my mom and I talked to my mom and she said, you know what, son, I will support you in anything that you ever do. If you're leaving Clear Lake because you think that you will forever be held back here, then I will pay for your bus ticket just to get you out of here. Now, understand that for my mom, that was extremely hard because I was her son that she brought in and, and she was, even still to this day, she is so attached to me uh, that I, I don't even know how to explain it because it's just, it, she puts it this way, like taking, having a child is one thing, but taking in another child and actually having to learn about them and learn how to love them is something that you'll never forget. So like, I got it, mm -hmm. you know? And then um, basically came down here to Arizona I was 17 at the time, probably not even a day older than 17. And me and old girl, I'm not going to say her name. She's probably going to listen to this and she'll hate me if I do. But, uh, she, you know, we're on this Greyhound bus. We get down here to Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, her mom's there to pick us up. And her mom tells us, goes, yeah, we're going back to the hotel, all this kind of stuff. My ears kind of poked up. And I said, hotel? I said, what are you talking about, old hotel over there? You know, what, what, what's going on? I thought you said house in Maricopa. Come to find out, there was no house in Maricopa. Uh, she had a family that lived there and she was living out of basically out of her truck and out of a hotel room. So like instantly I went to freak out mode and, and Dan, th there are some things that uh, in an, uh, there are traits that I have that I've had to learn that are horrible things that are not good at all. Uh, anyone who can manipulate yourself in and out of situations uh, in the ways that I've had to in my life, they develop a lot of issues and I'm man enough to understand that. But Basically, when I got down here, I recognized that we were going to have some problems with this. So I took myself to the local high school, which was Desert Vista High School. I went up and I told them, I said, hey, I'm a homeless foster kid. I moved out here. I don't have no family. All I've got is my birth certificate. I was smart enough to bring that. And I've got uh, a student ID from my last school. I interviewed with the school counselors and the school principal, and they said, hey, legally, uh, we're not allowed to do this unless you have a parent or guardian sign all these forms. So basically, faxed them back to my mom. My mom refused to sign them because she didn't want no part of it. So I forged all the signatures and rolled myself in school down here, right? Because like there's worse things that kids could be doing when committing forgery than enrolling themselves in school, right? right. So <laughs> I enrolled myself back in high school. Uh, it was my senior year at Desert Vista. I was excited to be here. 
you know, I'm, I'm living out of this hotel room, which is the most embarrassing thing in the world because I start getting friends, right? Like I start getting friends in the cowboy scene because I'm out here in a pair of cowboy boots and a pair of Wrangler jeans. And all these people are like, Hey, where did you come from? I'm like, well, I came from Northern California. So automatically like Northern California, yo, okay. You're not no cowboy kind of kid. I'm like, well, you're right. Cause at that point, I really know, I had no experience cowboying, but I also wasn't from San Francisco wearing flip-flops going to the beach every day, you know? So it was hard for me to uh, argue with these people on that. I just kind of went with it. And, and, and my friends would be like, hey, man, uh, you know, uh, why don't you, uh, you know, uh, like take us to your house? I'm like, well, you know, my family doesn't really like people over. So I just like kept having to lie to people. And then um, me and this girl ended up having a really bad falling out. And uh, I show back up to this hotel room one day. And there's a trash can out front that's got all my clothes and all my documents and all my school books in it. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. Uh, excuse my language. I'm sorry. I'm thinking, oh, snap. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do as a 17-year-old kid on the streets of Phoenix? I've got no money. Uh, I've got barely enough food. I think I had like four. They were, they were kind enough to put some cups of soup and top ramen in the trash can deal with all my clothes, right? Which, hey, uh, it could have been even worse. She could have left me with nothing. And I think she left me like a $20 bill. So I'm sitting here trying to figure out what am I going to do? And uh, I had a friend who he has grown to be uh, more like a brother to me now. Um, and I owe this guy a lot of credit to me being successful today. But basically, I did some things that weren't right. And I, I, I used him to acquire some money. That was enough to get me a plane ticket back to Northern California. And I called my mom. I said, look, I'm, I got myself some money. I didn't do it the right way. I pretty much robbed this kid for everything he had. I don't know what to do. I feel like the scum of the earth. And my mom goes, you're absolutely right. You are. And you're not coming back here. If, if you got that money fraudulently, you're, you're not coming here. So I basically didn't know what to do. Well, in the midst of all this, this kid's parents, who have now become a secondary family to me, uh, called the police and uh, had me arrested at high school. I'm 17 years old. I'm sitting in a classroom one day. I'm planning my way out of Phoenix. And all of a sudden, I see three Phoenix, uh, it was actually four Phoenix police officers come walking through the door. And uh, they look directly at me talk to the teacher. The teacher points me out. One cop comes up to me and says, Hey buddy, uh, I, I got to talk to you out front real quick. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, maybe my, my mom died. Maybe my dad died. You know, maybe somebody died. I don't know what's going on. I go outside the classroom. First thing he does hook me up in a pair of handcuffs and says, Hey, uh, you're under arrest for check fraud. And I said, all right, well, uh, that's good because, uh, I think this is the way of karma getting back at me and my mom's words coming back to haunt me. I, I accept this. So I ended up going to the police station I'm sitting there for about 15 minutes. Well, lo and behold, this, this, uh, this guy that I was friends with, his parents come walking in the room and they sit in front of me and they say, Hey, uh, you robbed our son for 1600 bucks. And I said, I did. And they go, we're really confused because you have no family. We're not able to get a hold of anybody. And even at this time, the police department were freaking out on who I was because they couldn't identify me. I had no identification. I had nothing. I was literally a 17 year old out on the streets of Phoenix by myself. And, uh, that I, I basically was truthful, told him my whole life story. And uh, this family said, well, you know what? Uh, we cannot let this kid go to juvenile hall uh, for trying to do what he only knows best and talk to the police. The police was like, well, you know, if you guys don't press charges, we're not going to press charges. If you're, if we're going to release him to your custody, we got to do this quick background check, do all this kind of thing. So they got CPS involved. But moral of the story, I got released uh, from this situation and uh, this family told me, said, well, hey, while you're living with us, you're going to continue to go to school and you're going to have to you're going to have to maintain a 3.0 GPA. And if you don't, we're going to press charges on you. And also, you're going to have to get a job and you're going to have to pay us the money back. And it has to be in money that you earn or else we're going to have you charged with it. So so decide what you want to do right now. I said, well, get me out of here. I'm freaking out. I'm like, I can't go to juvenile hall in Phoenix. You know, I'm I'm a kid from California. They're going to kill me and throw me over the fence. You know, so right. anyways, I, I, I get out of that and, and, and I'm going through the whole motions of life out here in Phoenix and I'm, I'm doing my thing. Well, I got associated with some kids who they were a lot like me where they were kind of just running and gunning the streets and doing their thing. And, and, and me, I have a very impulsive mindset where when somebody says, Hey, let's go jump this truck or let's go steal this truck. I'm like, Oh, cool. You know, at the time I'm like, right on, like I got to earn my respect around these, these parts. So I ended up uh, getting associated with some kids and, and, and we did some pretty stupid things. That, and, and again, I'm sitting there one day and I find myself in handcuffs at the same Phoenix police station with the same cop that's telling me, 
with the same cop that's saying, Hey, you know, we've got you arrested again. Uh, you know, but this time you are going to juvenile hall. So I, I get booked, go through the whole system. I'm in juvenile hall for 15 days and I get my first court date. And it's because uh, they were still trying to ID me. They're still trying to do this whole thing. So it takes forever. And I'm about 17 and a half at this time. And I get my first court date. Lo and behold, Mr. and Mrs. that were taking care of me out here in Phoenix and walking through that door. And they say, uh, the first thing that the, that, that uh, uh, Mr. Beck does is come up and smack me in the back of the head. And he says, uh, right in the courtroom, right in front of the judge. And even the judge was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just did that. Smack me in the back of the head and said, you know what? You had your one chance and you blew it. Uh, we're going to press charges on you. So I'm like, great. You know, I'm going to be facing like four felony charges. And I'm probably going to go to state prison as an adult because at this point, they're, they're probably going to charge me as an adult. Well, they basically stood up in court and said, we're thinking about this whole thing. And, and we have a teenager that's been by himself that clearly has mental health issues regarding his childhood uh, to let this person sit in an in a, in a institution like this is, is not going to work. So the judge goes, well, what do you guys have in mind? They say, well, let's, let's formally put him into the foster care system because uh, Arizona has this weird thing where you, when you enter the foster care system after the age of 17, you stay until you're 26. Uh, and, and that is something that they do because the young adult program is made to transition you from no family to being able to build a family and a, and a good career goal oriented life. And, and, and it's, it's just, it's great that we have programs out here like that. And it's something that I, I love. And love. Um, we don't want him uh, to go down this road. So let's, let's get him formally released to foster care and let's put him into the system and let us adopt him. And, and we'll take it from there. And the judge was like, hey, anything that I can do to get a juvenile out of the system, I'm going to go ahead and do it. So two months later, this whole process took. I'm thinking this is probably December um, and when I'm 17. I'm turning 18 in August. So I'm, I'm about, I don't know, nine, 10 months from being 18 years old. So my time for really figuring my life out is coming down because the things that I got arrested for, I'd probably be doing 20 years as an adult. So we couldn't have that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I get to the point to where I'm, I'm working with all these programs. I'm doing everything that I possibly can. I'm working with the Florence Crittenden program here in Arizona that basically what they do is they take individuals that have no life skills and they teach them how to go out and seek employment. They teach them resume building. They teach them how to go out and get an apartment, how to get a home and, and, and prepare you for life after the foster care system. And uh, about the time that I turned 18, I completed all these programs. My young adult program coordinator out here in Arizona with CPS was, was totally just loving everything that I was doing. Well, about three weeks after turning 18, I decided, I said, well, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get an apartment by myself. I told Mr. And Mrs. Beck, I said, thank you for everything that you've done, but I can't continue to live somewhere where I, I will always have that burden feeling. I have to get onto my own. So I had a job at Target. I had another job at, at a gun store where I was, I was working on guns. I was gunsmith and I was doing all these kind of things that I like to do. Well, I get into this apartment, get a roommate and I'm there for like um, maybe a month. And I find out that the roommate that I have has a huge drug problem. And anybody that knows me, like I said earlier, knows that I'm very impulsive. Uh, it, it's, I, I, at that time, if you said jump, I would have said how high, let's do it together and let's go. So I went down a stretch with him where I got heavily involved in drugs out here in Arizona, which is very easy to do considering, you know, the, the amount of drugs that we have here in Arizona. And uh, going through all that, I basically put myself in a position to where I was committing crimes almost on a daily basis to beat a habit. I ended up losing my hotel, ended up losing both jobs. And uh, I had a gal who we weren't romantically interested in each other, but she was my age. And she said, well, come and stay with me for a couple of days. And I went and I stayed at her house for a couple of days and was sleeping on her couch when her dad found out. Her dad freaked out and threw me out of the place. So I went to a truck dealership and I stole a truck. And I stole the truck and I was basically sleeping in this said truck for, I don't know, 16 or 17 days when finally I got pulled over and I got arrested for it. And uh, I ended up going uh, to county jail out here in Maricopa County, which at the time, Sheriff Joseph Arpaio was the county sheriff. And uh, he made uh, Maricopa County very, very unfriendly. Um, it was not a good place to go. Uh, if you're like me at six foot two and 240 pounds, you know, you like to eat and only eating two times a day really sucks. So <laughs> it kind of made me not ever want to go back. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, I ended up going through the state prison system and um, in the state prison system, you, you hook up with a lot of people that aren't good. Uh, these people are not good for you. Uh, they don't have your intentions 
um, at, at the best will of their heart. So I ended up getting associated with a lot of guys who they were like, Hey, when you get out, you know, since you're getting out to nothing, call my family, call this person, call this person, they're going to swoop you up and they're going to do all this. Well, these people that are associated with were a part of a lot of bad gangs out here in the United States that were, you know, seeing me as a young, dumb kid, uh, that liked to fight. And they were like, well, Hey, you know, uh, we want you to be involved in this. So I ended up being associated with these guys. Um, and I think like six months into it out here on the streets, I'm thinking, man, you know, I'm looking in the mirror, I'm going, I'm all tattooed down now. I've got all this ink on me that shows me being this, this horrible monster. I'm not that guy. And, uh, I'm, I'm sitting, uh, one day and I get a text over my phone, uh, cause I was on some, some deal and, uh, it's like, Hey, you know, this person wants to connect with you. So I start talking to this person and, uh, she turns out to be a really good woman. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, you know, she's into horses, you know, her, her dad's into cowboy and her mom's into cowgirl and all this kind of stuff. Her dad's a big name team rover out in Arizona here. And I'm thinking, you know, what is it that I can, you know, do to change my life? So basically I ended up meeting this girl who is now my wife. And, uh, she pretty much after meeting me and hearing my whole story, she was like, you know, she's like, wow, I've never even like, like smoked a cigarette before, you know, all these things that you're a part of are, are crazy. And, and I don't know if I can associate with you. So I did my best to, to like, please don't, don't leave me behind, like save me from this world. And, and her and I, uh, we were at a bar one night and, uh, I was hanging out with a friend of mine and, and, there were some bad things that happened that night and she happened to be there. And one of the best things that came out of that night was I finally told her, I said, I'm done with this lifestyle. I'm done with this gang crap. I'm done with these people that aren't doing nothing to, to better for me, but, but abuse me. And I've got to figure something out that's going to be better than, uh, you know, doing what I'm doing now. Because like I said, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Right. right. So I went to her and, uh, you know, she comes and she says, Hey, you know what? Come and meet my family. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll come and meet your family. And I'm dressed in a camouflage t-shirt and a pair of Wrangler jeans because her, she told me, Oh, my dad's a hardcore cowboy. You know, he's, he's really into cowboy. So I figured I'll dress to impress. Well, the first thing he looks at me and goes, why are you all tattooed down? Were you an inmate or something? And she started laughing. And, and mind you that this man is a 30 year veteran of the Mesa police or uh, sorry, the Mesa fire department. Um, spent his whole life as a, in the fire service. So he has seen real bad things happen. One of his best friends is a sergeant with the Mesa police department. And I, I've got the courtesy of meeting both these people the same night. So I'm thinking, Oh my God, you know, I've got a cop and a firefighter in front of me and I'm this guy that's all tattooed down with this crazy stuff. What am I going to do to leave a good impression? So I end up having dinner with him and, and, and I meet her mom and her mom's like totally just giving me the whole shun light, not wanting to communicate with me at all. And I'm going, wow, this is horrifying. And, and her dad looks at me and goes, hey, bud, have you ever hunt before? And I said, no. And he goes, well, why are you wearing a camouflage shirt? And I said, well, uh, you know, I like camouflage. And he goes, well, don't wear that again unless you're a hunter. And I said, <laughs> all right, Gene, I, I appreciate that. You know, and uh, I, I started hanging hanging out with her a lot. I got kicked out, again. I got kicked out of the place that I was living because it just felt like everywhere I went, I, I had this, this this tenacity of just being uh, a raging, uh, bad, mean person. And, and, it, and it really spawns because I was dealing with issues in my childhood. So, you know, Taylor, who's my wife, says, you know, uh, let's get an apartment together. And uh, at the time, I was on probation. And um, I transferred my probation over to Pinal County. And I got into this apartment. And one of those, maybe two days, I hear a knock on the door. Look out the window. It's my probation officer. I open the door. Next thing you know, I have Apache Junction SWAT team rushing into this apartment, holding my uh, uh, then girlfriend at gunpoint and handcuffing us all. And, and she's sitting there trying to do homework. She's trying to be, to be a registered nurse, right? Right. She has never seen any of this before. So she's thinking, oh my God, what happened? She's like, what did you do? I'm like, I didn't do anything. I don't know what's going on. My, my probation officer said, you know what you did. I'm like, I don't know what I did. So at the moral of it, she was like, you lied to me and said that you were on the lease here because you weren't on the lease. So I proved the point that you are not invisible and untouchable. This was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And let me tell you why. And if Linda is listening to this, it, this is a curving point for me because I learned to, she told me that same night, she goes, Joshua, I know that you do not like authority and I know that you hate women in authority, but guess what? I have the power to take your life away from you and potentially let you sit in prison for up to 20 years. And I said, you know what, Linda, you're absolutely right. So what I'm going to do is not be a dick to you, and I'm going to learn how to respect you just a bit. So I did. Melinda took me around, basically had me talk to all these landlords. And what the weird thing was, 
is I went on the Craigslist and found this house that I wanted to rent for Taylor and I. And uh, at this point, we just found out, me and Taylor have been together for three months. We just found out she was pregnant, who was my first son, Ethan. Um, you know, her family didn't know, so I'm weighing, weighing this whole option. Man, we don't even got a for sure house now. And I went to Melinda and I said, hey, I'm expecting a child and I'm scared to death. And she goes, well, look, I'm going to start putting you into parenting classes out here that are going to be paid for by the probation department. And also, too, I'm going to help you go out and look for a house. Well, me and my now wife, we ended up going and finding a house that was in Apache Junction that was on a good spread of, uh, I think it was like three acres or something like that. And we got into this house and everything is going good. I ended up getting a job as a, as, as a landscaper and uh, this company liked my work ethic. So they invested money into me to become a certified irrigation technician. I was also a certified irrigation designer that went on to be an account manager for a couple big name uh, landscape companies out here in Arizona. At this time, I'm about, I don't know, 19, 20, going into 21-ish. Uh, all these things are happening. I'm looking good. Melinda comes to me one day and says, hey, Joshua, I got good news for you. I said, what's that? And she goes, you have by far impressed me the most out of anyone that I've ever had. I am immediately requesting termination of your, your, your probation. Now, this next part only happens to one in a million people. She also told me, says, I'm recommending the judge set aside all your criminal convictions so you are no longer a felon. Because I was an adult felon at the time, which meant that any job that I went and got was a big deal. So two months into this whole deal, Taylor and I are, are living at this place up in Apache Junction. I get a letter in the mail that's from the Superior Court of Maricopa County that says, uh, Canal County terminated your probation. Here's a pink piece of paper that says you're no longer a convicted felon. So I said, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. I, I, all these charges are set aside. I can, I can now legally say no on that box. I can do all these good things. So I, I went to my now wife and I said, look, I got to do something better for myself. I, I have to, you know, uh, do something greater. And she goes, well, what's your thoughts? I didn't know that when my wife and I first got together that she had inherited a whole bunch of money. Um, so this whole time that we were together, she had a whole bunch of money saved. Uh, and, and, and I, when I had found out, I went to her and I said, would you please invest in my future? Um, and she goes, well, what do you want me to do? I said, you know, for $2,900, I can go to the CDL school. I can get my commercial truck license. I, I can be a truck driver. This is how I'm going to fund my family. This is how I'm going to take care of them. You know, help me do this. And she goes, okay, yeah, I'll do it. So she paid for me to go to the CDL school got everything done, got my license. But then the problem was, uh, my criminal history was set aside, but for some reason, a lot of these background check companies still had them listed as a felony. So even though I had this paperwork, I took it to companies like Swift and Warner, and they still said, they said, hey, you have to contact uh, these investigative services like HireRight and get this changed. And every time I did, they would be like, well, we have up to five years to fix it. Um, so basically, I was getting screwed, and I, and I was wondering what I was going to do. So about a year into to, to this back and forth thing and having my CDL not being able to get a job, I'm working for a landscape company. I get a phone call from a company out here in Phoenix who I won't name because they went out of business on bad terms. But um, they called me and they said, hey, uh, we, we have your application here. And uh, we know that, you know, higher right put down these things. And we also know that we have a copy of, uh, of, uh, of, of this thing that said that your charges were set aside. What can we do to get you on? And I said, well, uh, all you have to do is put it in writing that you're going to hire me. I'm going to take it to my wife right now and, and I will quit my job today and I'll be on the road with you tomorrow. Also mind you that this is a year after getting my CDL and I had zero experience. The only experience I had was the 15 minutes a day that I spent in the truck while me and everyone else was sharing, you know, sharing the wheel. So I go to this company and they go, Hey, we don't train here. So you're going to have to learn by yourself. So I went over the road at, at 21 years old by myself, never shifting a truck without someone helping me. My first trip was to Ohio and then to Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm sitting one day and it's a Friday and I'm expecting a paycheck. My wife calls me and goes, buddy. And I, or I, I, she said something crazy like that. Like she was like, oh my God, buddy, like check this out. For some reason, my wife and I have always had this relationship where we're like, man, you buddy, babe, love you. Yes, no kind of thing. So she goes, uh, I just got your paycheck. And I said, what's that? And she goes, it's $1,575. And I still have a copy of that pay stub. And I go, I, I go, is that an error? And she goes, no, it's $1,500. Mind you, I was living off a $300 a week salary. And as an account manager, the most I was getting was 500. So this is like a huge deal. So we end up, we go down, we get another house. It's a little bit bigger. At this time, uh, we had just had my son Easton, I think a week before I had gotten this job. So it was the complete biggest blessing in the size I've ever gotten. And from there, I just pretty much stayed in the trucking industry where I'm still at today. And I worked my tail off and I'm still with the same woman. I, I've got three sons now that uh, 
you know, are, are obviously with the same woman and I, I'm just trying to do the best that I can with it all and, and deal with it all and the, and the daily struggle. And, and it's actually funny because you posted something a couple of days ago that I, I, I'm not going to be like, Oh, you made me cry. But I stopped in my truck. I was, I was in Wyoming when I read it. It was just a couple of days ago, but it was talking about if you live your life in chaos, you know, it basically I found the culprit. I looked at myself in the mirror. You have no clue how relevant that is to a lot of people in life, right? I'm one of those who I always have constant chaos, Daniel. And, and, I, and for the longest time, I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized one day that my childhood is a big, big impact on how I feel in my adult life, everything from the anxiety problems that I face, the depression issues that I've had to overcome, all these things and into, into my work life where I had no patience, no tolerance for people. I had to learn how to deal with people and telling me, hey, you did this wrong. I had to learn constructive criticism. And then it's like I had to learn from my, my now father-in-law who we would be out branding or we would be out throwing the rope and he'd be like, you didn't do that right. I'd be like, okay. And then he'd be like, I ain't going to show you again. So you need to figure it out yourself kind of stuff. You know, and that man right there, uh, that, that man has taught me uh, so many things that my, my passion right now is, is, is in the horsemanship and, and I'm not where I want to be with it. But, but this past weekend, you've probably seen pictures of it. I spent all weekend on the back of a horse, this, this money horse that we have. And, and, and I have learned that horses are an incredible, incredible being because they feel emotion and they feed off your patience. And me, I am one of those who I feel the same exact way. So I relate to horses in, 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 in such, a, in such a, a deep way that I constantly check myself, hey, you're getting angry. This, this horse knows that you're getting angry. you got to settle down. And, and it's become a serious reality check because I'm taking those things and I'm thinking to myself, look at life as like one of those big giant horses that you're trying to ride. Every single time that you get impatient and you get angry, life is going to feel it and it's going to come back at you 10 times harder uh, uh, than it would have been just staying in the saddle. Because one day eventually you're going to get bucked off and you're going to hit face down and it's going to hurt a lot more than you expected it to, you know? And it's just where we're at now. I, I still find myself sometimes in these positions. And if, and if there's people that went through a similar childhood that are, that are listening to this, my recommendation is, is, man, don't ever be afraid to find people that to look up to and to reach out for help and to see exactly what they're doing. Because everybody has a story, everybody has a history and everybody has a past. And what we do with those things and where we go with them defines us as who we are. I, I've never met a man in my life that I can sit here and go, well, he was a criminal, uh, so I can't trust him, or, or, or this, that, and the other. It was about his actions right now, what he is doing right now at this time and present. You know what I mean? And it's just, I think, I, I think how cowboying turns, turns uh, with all that is that in cowboying, your word is everything. In cowboying, your faith in yourself uh, is, is exactly everything. And, and if you are the guy that people know as the guy that constantly breaks his word, constantly says, yes, I'll be there, doesn't show up. It's constantly the guy that's wrecking horses, wrecking people's arenas because you're not running right. Whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you, you got to figure out what's causing that and, 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 and how to associate yourself with those good people. And what I did was, is my father-in-law, Gene, one of the most stand-up individuals I've ever met in my entire life. The man gave 30 years of his life to public service. And, and the man has stories that, I, I, let me tell you this, I, I've been in, in stores before with this man, and I've had people walk up to my father-in-law and go, oh my God, I need to shake your hand. And he looks at me like, what are you talking about? And they're like, two weeks ago, you saved my life. And he's like, oh, I, I'm sorry. You know, like, I, I, it's not that I don't recognize you. It's just I try to put that stuff behind me. So I automatically associate myself with this guy. One, because he's my father-in-law, but even before he was my father-in-law, as somebody that was a father figure, because he has a very similar background as mine. And, and he ended up finding somebody, an old cowboy that took him in, that taught him everything he needs to know. And to this day, I'm not the world's greatest cowboy and I try to drive more than a cowboy, but everything that I've learned truly cowboy in the respect for nature, the respect for life itself, understanding livestock, understand, understanding the way that cows work, understanding the way that horses work are strictly because of him, you know? And, and, uh, I, I had the honor of, uh, meeting another individual this weekend up there at Sholo, um, who is a 30 year veteran of the California highway patrol, who is one of the most, blunt people I've ever met in my entire life in the sense that, you know, oh, your shoes aren't dirty enough. You must be fake kind of guy. And I'm like, oh man, I wish I would have brought my dirty one, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff like that, that I look at as very important because I want somebody to be able to call me out. If I walk into a room and I'm saying, oh, I'm this and that, I want somebody to look at me and be like, uh, BS buddy, your pants are clean. So you can't tell me you do nothing through your life, right. you know, <laughs> stuff like that, that people don't know 
I'd appreciate it. I'm sorry if I went on to a, a long ramble. I tried to put this stuff together in the most efficient way possible, but no, that's where no, we're at with it. You, you're fine. You are totally fine. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you, your story is, is just unbelievable, you know, to begin with. And, and for you to, you know, be a father and, and raising three sons now, you know, after what you've, uh, you know, had to go through in your life is, is just so commendable. Um, something that I know too, uh, about, about you recently posted, um, some things about, uh, Sheriff Apio. I know you reached out to him. You, you want to just tell us a little <laughs> bit about, about what happened there? So, so pretty much here's the thing. Uh, I, I credit the jail system out here in Maricopa for being 90% of the reason why when I got out of it, I didn't go back. And the reason why I'm terrified of Maricopa County. And I've talked to many people that were residents of his facility that will tell you the same thing. There is nothing worse than being in a, in a closed facility that locks you down 23 hours a day, that only feeds you twice a day. And let me tell you, the food that they feed you is hardly edible. You have to learn to, to, to like it. Um, and then also, too, you're, you are literally uh, a waste of space. That's all you are. And it's not that anyone treats you bad. But when you're living your life in striped pajama pants and, and you're, you're sleeping next to a guy that's, that's in jail for murder, you know, you, you learn to not want to go back. And, and basically what I did was I contacted Sheriff John. I said, Hey man, um, I, I, I wasn't even trying to get involved with him. I wasn't trying to get no notoriety, nothing. I just said, Hey, you know what? Uh, um, I really support you. I want you to know that my whole family voted for you. And there's a lot of reasons why. Well, the next day I get a Facebook message that says, uh, Hey Joshua, this is, uh, you know, Sheriff Joseph Arpaio. I'm just writing you to let you know that I appreciate you uh, for throwing your support. Um, but you know, is it okay if we share your story here? So I ended up posting a picture of my mugshot. I'm pretty sure that you've seen it. Yeah. And I said, probably the most truthful statement that I could ever come up with was that once you understand the rule of law, you learn to accept the punishment and understand why. And that's verbatim. That is exactly the quote that I used. But in a nutshell, it was simply this. If you are an individual that commits crime and you can't do the time, then you probably shouldn't be committing crime. And right. that's what Sheriff Joe taught me. So he ended up sending me an invitation to, to his primary watch party. And I ended up uh, bringing my sister-in-law with me because everyone else was busy. And we went there and he actually ended up sitting right next to me. And we ended up spending a couple hours talking to each other. And probably one of the most humble human beings that I've ever met. Because when I, when I started talking to him, he looked at me and goes, I'll take a picture with you. But I'm not going to sit here and listen to you tell me that I saved your life because I didn't. And he flat told me, he goes, I had absolutely nothing to do with saving your life. If my institution helped you. Then, then, then that's what I was there for, and, and I don't need to be thanked for that. And this is pretty much what he had told me in the first five minutes of physically meeting him face-to-face. And uh, he was there with his wife, Ava. And, uh, he's, a, he's a really funny guy. For being an older guy, he's got a sense of humor. I, I, I go to give him a hug. Everybody's taking pictures. He, he looks at me, and he whispers in my ear. He goes, Josh, smile like it's your mugshot. <laughs> and, and, I, and, it's, and it's the picture where him and I are leaned into each other and you, and you can tell that I'm listening to him because I got a bright smile on my face and I said man I said man Mr. O'Pile or, or I referred to him as Sheriff O'Pile I said for being 82 years old you sure got a sense of humor and he's like oh you, you've heard nothing yet just wait until I get to Washington yeah. and I said well I, I believe you I believe you Mr. O'Pile and uh, anyway so he ended up uh, you know the people of Arizona voted they didn't think that he was the best for the United States Senate which I understand why people felt that way, but, uh, you know, I, I was humbled just to be a part of that, uh, that post that he had shared. Uh, he shared one of my Facebook posts. It got something like 500 or something thousand, uh, uh, likes and, and just a ridiculous amount of comments. And what was crazy to me was this, man, you would think in a world of change and a world where people constantly preach doing better for yourself. I could not believe the amount of hate mail, death threats, and, 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 and just crazy things that I got said to me over that. There was one person that was like, Oh, what a what a d bag! I hope he goes back to prison for the rest of his life. And somebody commented on it, was like, "For what?" And they were like, "Well, if you support Sheriff Joe, you're nothing but a racist child killer." And I'm like, "Okay, so uh, you know, my right of democracy here in a sovereign country to be able to vote for anybody I want to makes me a racist child killer." Yeah, you know, and I, I was like, "This is this is just crazy." And and to keep it out of politics, because I'm sure there's some people on your on your deal here that feel differently than I do. I'm one of those people, man, who if you believe in something and, and you don't put 100% into it, then you're automatically fake to me. You know, you, you, have to, uh, you have to put everything that you have into believing in, in, in what you stand for, whether or not it's a product or, or uh, whether or not it's, it's a service that you offer. I mean, I can tell you 10,000 examples of people, and the biggest one that rings true to me is Chelsea over at American Feathers. When you take something 
and, and you build something off of tragedy and you put it out into the public and you put a hundred thousand percent into it, you get something that changes people's lives. And I'm going to tell you something, brother, about six months ago, I had a spiritual awakening and I'm not trying to get all super Jesus on you because I, I don't want to do that. But I will tell you that about six months ago, I came into contact with Chelsea and I looked at that American feather for what it was. And, and I said, you know what, if, if I have the ability to wear this on my hat, I have to live up to being a good person. And, and I have my faults and I have all these things, but what matters is that you're doing something about them and you're always trying to change yourself, position yourself to be the best possible asset and best possible person for the company you work for, the family that you go home to, and the service that you give to the people in the world. Because it doesn't just stop with me. At every single day, I come into contact with 100 drivers over here at the co company I work for. I'm one of the driver trainers. And the one thing is, is that if I'm not on my game at 100% that day, this person might not learn something and this person might end up hurting somebody one day. So I have to take a whole lot of pride in living up to what I think that, that feather, you know, stands for. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, Josh. And, and I'll tell you, I, I really appreciate you, you know, just being so uh, transparent and, uh, you know, just uh, open and real. Uh, I, I, I believe that your message is going to resonate with, you know, a lot of people and, uh, you know, even, you know, you know, many people haven't gone through what you've gone through, you know, as a child, but like you said, the people we are today has uh, a lot to do with, you know, how we were raised and how we learn things. And it's a process uh, for all, each and every one of us to continue to, to work on ourselves and, and grow and to just uh, add value to the world and not, and not take. And so I, I commend you, man, for, for, you know, sharing your story. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to getting this episode published and, and letting people hear it because I think it'll have a huge impact. Well, absolutely, my friend. And, and like I said, the name of the game when it comes to things, man, is anyone that's experienced any kind of tragedy or trauma in your life, um, it's okay to go to people for help. And when yeah. people sit there and tell you, look, you're using it as a crutch and you're doing all these things, don't listen to those people. Because if I listen to every person that told me, hey, don't use this as a weakness, turn this into something that's going to make you great. It's never that easy. And if I took that way out, I would have took that easy way out of everything. You have to actually physically take the time to look at all these issues you have, break them down and, and wonder what it is that you're going to do better. And my wife has been probably the hugest supporter because she's taken the blunt of all the impact of all this, because, you know, behind closed doors, when, when you're a man that lives with, with full on depression and you live with full on anxiety and one day you're up next day, you're down, the people that you held closest to you, are the ones that get affected the most. And, and, and that is when, as, as a family and as a unit, you all have to come together and do the cowboy thing and say, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to buck this out of you and, and we're going to run, you know, run this arena out until you can figure this out. And, and that's, just, that's just the moral of it, man. And, and, and again, you know, trucking has been the best thing that I've ever done because it gives me so much time by myself to reflect on my life. And it also gives me a chance to look into that mirror and, and reflect back and say, man, I didn't, I wasn't honest today. Man, I didn't treat my wife good. And man, I didn't speak very kindly or wisely to this guy in front of me, you know, because everyone says be nice to each other, but being nice is, is, is an object. Being kind to people in life is a whole different story. And when you can start being kind with yourself and with everyone around you, you, you are achieving a great success, no matter how much money you have in the bank, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Hey, we're getting close to, to the end of the time. So I just want to get a couple things real quick, man. Um, Favorite uh, favorite cowboy boots brand? Man, my favorite cowboy boots are Ariat Vent Tech, the work boots, because they got that plastic uh, they got that plastic layering that keeps me from putting nails through my foot. And they have uh, I haul heavy rebar for a living, so man, that that rebar just shoots boots up. And I've had many times where I got my foot wedged and stuff, and I'm glad I had those Ariats on. Yeah, favorite uh, brand of cowboy hat. Man, I'm I'm a Mountain Home Company all the way, and it, and it comes back to the people that supported Chelsea in the beginning that get that gave her the ability to inspire. I've got to throw my money too, so I'm American Hat Girl all day. There you go. Favorite uh, cowboy movie? My favorite cowboy movie is Unforgiven slash Young Guns. <laughs> I, I'm torn on both of them. I, I love a good Clint, uh, Clint Eastwood movie, but uh, man, that movie Young Guns when you get Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez together with Lou Diamond Phillips, that's some comedy right there. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely amazing. And uh, how how about music? You got uh, any favorite artists? Man, right now I'm 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 tied up in this Texas country 
you know, deal that everyone in. I mean, you got Cody James, you got Aaron Watson, Cody Johnson, but there's there's another guy out there in Texas that a lot of people don't share a lot about. His name is Josh Ward. Oh yeah, and, uh, you know if you're sitting, yeah, if you're sitting here right around Josh, Josh is cool because if you go on Instagram and you talk to him, he'll actually respond back to you, have conversations with you. And when he was coming out here to Mesa, you know, I'd post a whole bunch of stuff about how I was going to see him, and he took the time to sit down and have a conversation with me about it and say, hey, you know, if you go, say hi to me, and I'll shake your hand, take pictures, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and I see that guy is being a very humble dude because he comes from the rodeo scene and he is a family man, so the stuff that he sings about is true. Yeah, I love uh, that uh, stuff that Josh Ward has done, uh, the remakes of Keith Whitley and uh, uh, Earl Thomas Conley stuff. Uh, great great artist, though. Love him. Yeah, like I said before, he's a, he's a down-home country boy. He actually comes from a life of radio. And, you know, he, he's pretty defined in the, in the cowboy art. So he's a, he's a good dude that takes um, you know, the time to have a good conversation with you. So. Yeah, it's totally great. Well, Josh, we better uh, sign off here, man. I, I, again, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, just really, really thankful that, uh, you know, you're sharing your story and, and uh, you're doing good and, and adding value to people's lives. So um, I think it's just a I'm great doing thing. my best, brother. Doing my best. And like I said, if there's anyone out there, you know, with a class A CDA and you're in need of some work, come see me over here at White Mountain Trucking because we're, we're looking for people every day and uh, let them know that uh, – well, Dan from my modern cowboy podcast sent you over and don't know who to talk to. Perfect. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes too. Um, uh, Josh, and then if people want to follow you on, on Instagram. What's your handle on Instagram? Well, actually my, my Instagram got, uh, got stole yesterday. I don't know if you noticed, but I, I, it, it got taken down because someone, it said somewhere in like India, my password been compromised. So they ended up, it up. but I'm, I'm seeing on Facebook at the Joshua Lawrence. So, like I said, I mean, you'll, you'll share my posts, and then once we get uh, my uh, Instagram back up, it's uh, jtrain underscore AZ Trucker. So hopefully that will be back up by the end of the day, but we're just waiting to see what they say about it. So Perfect. Perfect, man. All right, Josh. Well, hey, thanks again, and uh, we'll be in touch. Where are you, cowboys? All right, Dan, you, you take care now, brother. I appreciate your time. You bet. Friday afternoon, I hitch up the trailer Saddle up old rock and ice down a cooler I drive that old back road until it ends At the rope and pin We got them rusted out pickups and fancy rigs $20,000 horses, then there's my own stick Although we're all the same minute we ride in to the roping pen Well, I ain't no play speed But I give her hell He can never can tell Someday I just might be We'll turn a few steers And we'll tell a few lies Kick back in the saddle and philosophize Most of life's problems Yeah, we're gonna solve them Down at the roping pen Yeah, we don't do it for the money Yeah, we're always broke Just ask Clint what he paid a rope He's lost a dozen wives Half the fingers on his hands To the rope and pen And it takes a little skill And a little luck If you can talk smack You can back it up Oh, but we're all friends No matter who wins Down at the rope and pen Someday I just might be We'll turn another pin of steers Tell a few more lies Drink another beer And hop off the sides 
most of life's problems By God, we're gonna solve them Down at the Roman Pen We'll see y'all again Next weekend Down at the Roman Pen Down at the Roman Pen